This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, you. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm quite well. I'll tell you a funny thing, which is I thought of you. I was coming off a train yesterday and uh, I was on a visit and I thought I was being met by somebody and this guy waves at me and I was like, hi, great to see you, I said. Um, Thanks so much for coming to pick us up. And he said, I'm actually waiting for the person behind you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's nice to meet you anyway. Oh, God. I was just too enthusiastic. You know what I mean? I was just no, like no. straight in there. Did you tell the waving man about your cold water swimming and your experiments in soup? No. He then went off with the person who he was actually due to meet and was sort of chuckling on his way. Ah, <laughs> uh, You know, yeah. life's full of these sort of social... This is what you talk about on a drift, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, should, we, basically- should we do some cross... Pollination here. Yes, yeah. I have a, an entire podcast devoted to these moments, of which there are many. Maybe we should do a sort of threesome with you, me, and um, Annabelle. Threesome is probably not the way to describe it. I, did, uh, I didn't want to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Um, Can I ask you about something that happened to me the other day? Yeah. I was riding one of those line bikes down a residential street, and I can see in, in the distance three teenage lads. Now, I believe that children are our future, and I'm a little intimidated when I'm riding a bike past teenagers because I think they're going to mock me in some way. So as I'm approaching them, one of them shouts, Oi, Charlie! And then the others fall about laughing, and they all shout, Oi, Charlie! Charlie! You're right, Charlie! And they're, they're hysterical in laughter, and I'm really paranoid because I've got no idea what it means. Did you look it up? I asked... Our babysitter, who she herself is a teenager, she had no idea. And then I thought, like, what famous Charlie could it be? Like, could it be Charlie Brown? Well, I I think I feel like Charlie Brown on the inside, but I don't look like Charlie Brown on the outside. Uh, Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie's Angels. Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Faulkner. Charlie Faulkner. The the former Lord (laughs) Chancellor, good friend of yours. unlikely that. Uh... So... What, what do you think? How do I solve this mystery? If there are any parents or teenagers listening. Maybe you could ask your boys. OK. But I'm holding on to the idea that it might be a compliment. You look sceptical. Mm. Anything else going on with you this week? Yes, yeah, so I went to see a, this play by James Graham called Best of Enemies. And very good it was too. Give us the full ed review. Well, it's about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. And it's about their... They did... This what is now very familiar on on television, which is a sort of uh, head to head from the left and the right at the nineteen sixty eight Republican Democratic conventions, and I think James's thesis is it's sort of the beginning of that kind of mode of television sort of whipping things up. Mm. Anyway, it's incredibly well done, and I love David Harewood. Do you know David Harewood? Yes, actor? I do. Yeah, yeah. I saw him on the tube actually a few a couple of months ago. Did you wave? I decided not to bother him. I think he was on the way to the play, and I think it was just in a little bit sort of interfering. Anyway, so that was fun. Uh, I went with Mark Steers, my friend Mark Steers. Lovely. Did you have a box of Maltesers between the two of you? We didn't actually. We were quite restrained. Mm. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. 
This week, we're talking about climate litigation and its role in bringing about climate justice. Climate litigation, it's all about the people taking governments and companies to court over their action on climate change and holding them to account. Now, it's a topic we've looked at before, back in January 2020, which is three years ago. But masses has happened since then, and we thought it is definitely worth revisiting. We're talking to Catherine Hyam, who will give us an overview of the state of climate litigation today, to Laura Clark, who's the CEO of one of the organisations that has really been at the forefront of this uh, climate litigation, which is Client Earth, and to climate activist Sophia Mathur, who's taken the Ontario government to court over its climate targets, and she is only 15. Fantastic. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, Ed, I had lunch with somebody who told me a great fact. Go on. Are you aware of the Sundance Film Festival? I have always wanted to go to the Sundance Film Festival. So the fact I learned about the Sundance Film Festival is that film companies pay Uber drivers and Lyft drivers to be spies. So if you're some young filmmaker and you've just had a meeting with some producers who want to offer you, I don't know, a million dollars and you're in the back of an Uber telling your your partner about it or on your phone, they listen in on the conversation and then are paid to feed that information back for negotiations. That can't be true. Why would somebody lie to me at a lunch? Was it a good source? Yes, it was. Yeah, very reliable source. You can't say who. I can't say who, but but somebody very connected to the film industry. So that could be your chance to go to the Sundance Film Festival. You could go and work (laughs) as a spy. An Uber driver. Yeah, a spying Uber driver. So that's my reason to be cheerful. I thought it was a great fact. Uh, what's yours? Uh, mine is that I was in Berlin last week, as you know. Oh, yeah, got in Himmel. And I was meeting with members of the government, uh, climate activists, uh, Luisa Neubauer, who's founder of Fridays for the Future in Germany. Um, really inspiring. I mean, the, the as you know, the, the SPD and the Greens are in government. Uh, lots of interesting ideas. Solar panels on balconies. That was one of the interesting ideas. Right. In Berlin, they're giving out vouchers for people to have solar panels put on their balconies or in their gardens. I was quite interested in that. Um, giving people shares in uh, renewable energy companies. Uh, a very exciting guy called John Schellenhuber, who founded the Potsdam Institute, which is a scientific institute. Um, he's now retired from there, but he's got this... It's a very interesting idea, this. His basic idea is if you can make houses out of timber, you can um, tackle the climate crisis. Why? Because instead of burning wood, you are locking in the carbon. And therefore, if you're replanting and you are building the houses out of timber and it's and it's locked in, you're climate positive. In other words, you're reducing emissions. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I do. That's interesting. And it's sort of counterintuitive because you think, well, hang on, should you be really using timber? But of course, the point is you're not burning the timber. That's the key thing. Yeah, that's so interesting. And obviously you'd have to replant the forests and all that. But it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? It's called Bauhaus Europe. Did you buy a timber house off him? No, but I thought it was interesting. So anyway, it was really fun. It was, it was really stimulating and fun and, and sort of exciting to see what people can do in government, even though they've got challenges. Um... I went swimming in Berlin in the lakes. It was very cold, 2.9 degrees. How busy was it? Is that a popular popular activity there? There was people doing what they called ice dipping, which just seemed to involve going into the water and standing there for a bit mm. and then getting out. But they looked at me slightly oddly because I don't think I was seem to be the only person swimming. Oh. 
And we did our episode on nightlight, the nighttime economy recently. And Berlin, of course, is a great exemplar of that. Um, did you go out to any techno clubs in a warehouse? Well, what do you think, Jeff? I think, yes, I think you were stripped to your waist, smothered in Vaseline, blowing a whistle on a podium <laughs> until 6am every night. Yes, that would be incorrect. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start the conversation, we're joined by policy fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at LSE, Catherine Hyam. Hello. Hello. Do you think you could be a cult policy fellow, Jeff? I don't, I'm definitely a fellow. Um, the policy, I think I might struggle Maybe with. We should call you the Reasons to be Cheerful Policy Fellow. I'd be happy to receive the fellowship. <laughs> The Guardian recently suggested that this year, 2023, is going to be a watershed year for climate litigation. What are the trends? Why is this kind of legal action gaining momentum? So I think the first thing you need to understand about climate change litigation is that it's a huge and very diverse field. So we have uh, more than 2,000 cases that have been identified around the world. But within that, you have cases that range from Californian cities suing fossil fuel companies to a dispute about whether or not someone in Medway should be able to put solar panels on their house and how much that was interfering with their, their neighbor's enjoyment of their own property. But what we've seen in the last few years is a growth in what we call strategic litigation. So that's cases that are trying to have a broader impact beyond uh, the issue that the parties are raising. They're often brought by NGOs, civil society groups, um, individuals, and they're often uh, accompanied by campaigns and advocacy um, of different types. Does that mean they're trying to set legal precedents with victories? So they're trying to set legal precedents with victories. They're also just trying to raise the profile of the issues um, and to get a seat at the negotiating table as well. So often you see uh, people who have been excluded or marginalized from the policy processes using litigation as a way of making their issues and their perspectives on something heard. Talk to us about the sort of would it be the typology of this, Catherine? Because some climate litigation takes on corporations and some takes on governments. Is that right? Exactly. So each year we produce an annual report um, tracking kind of global trends in litigation. And we try and explain to people the different types that you find within this uh, field of strategic litigation. Most of the cases, more than 70%, are filed against governments. And you get sort of two important types of cases there. One is uh, these kind of big cases challenging a government's overall response to climate change, saying your overall emissions reduction targets aren't ambitious enough. You don't have a national policy on climate change adaptation. Uh, you have good targets, but you don't have anywhere near the policies that you'd need to actually meet them. Um, so you're being completely inconsistent. And then we also get a lot of challenges that are kind of looking at very specific government decisions. So such and such country has declared that they're going to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, but they're still uh, approving new coal mines. You also get this smaller and in many ways more diverse field against big corporations, against major fossil fuel companies, the oil majors, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, to try and make those companies responsible for some of the costs of adapting to climate change and some of the damages that are already being suffered. But we've since seen a kind of real expansion in the range of cases that are being filed against corporations or corporate actors. So there are cases against the meat and dairy industry. There's a lot of cases involving plastics. We're getting a huge swathe of cases looking at greenwashing. So what 
companies in many different industries are saying they're doing on climate change versus what they're actually doing. So it's a very diverse field, as I said, and there's a a lot going on. And I know this is a kind of unfair question probably to ask, but you had to assess the impact, the lasting impact this litigation is having on global efforts to tackle the climate emergency. How would you assess that? So I think there's a couple of ways to understand the impact of climate change litigation. The first is how it creates uh, legal precedents, basically whether or not people are winning in court. And we find that probably about 50% or a little bit more of the cases have had favourable outcomes for climate action in court. So that's, that's pretty positive. But there's also another way of understanding this issue, which is kind of what are the impacts it's having outside of the courtroom? How is it helping people to understand the climate crisis in a new light, um, to understand the narratives, to understand uh, really who is responsible for some of these issues? And there we see that cases have had a major impact. So uh, there was a very famous case, the case of uh, Agenda and State of the Netherlands um, that was finalized before the, uh, the Dutch Supreme Court in 2019. And that has had a major impact on Um, politics in the Netherlands. We also see the same thing with a case that was brought against Germany that has then influenced the redrafting of German climate policy. So these cases are having a big impact. I would say, though, that they are not a silver bullet for the climate crisis. So there are real downsides to litigation as a strategy. In one way, you know, litigation is what you do when you can't do anything else, um, when you haven't had a collaborative policymaking process that is really trying to address the issues. Um, so it's, it's a way of pointing out the gaps. And then even when the litigation is successful, somebody still has to step in and figure out how to fill those gaps. What are the policies that we need to introduce to meet these targets? Um, What do we need to do to try and keep people safe from climate impacts? And the other issue is the courts are available to everybody, which means we're also seeing um, other groups of individuals resorting to the courts to try and delay climate policy or to try and prevent climate policy. And we've seen a few different cases looking at that kind of issue in the past. So we we need to really understand that, as two scholars put it, in climate change litigation, for every action, uh, you can almost say there's an equal and opposite reaction in some ways. How easy is it really for individuals to be sort of part of this or to move this forward? So I think that's a really good question. And it goes to this this point about how is this litigation being funded? So a lot of it is being funded by crowdfunding. There's a lot of it, though, that goes directly to larger NGOs, which might mean that it's hit or miss whether somebody um, with a, a legitimate issue is actually able to connect with those NGOs who are able to help them to bring a case. So there are challenges. I mean, there are, though, great stories that come out. So there's a brilliant case of a, a Peruvian farmer, Sol Luciana Leluya, who met a young German man who worked at the time for a human rights NGO in Germany, and they started to talk. And that resulted in this brilliant case that's been filed before the courts in Germany against RWE, challenging RWE to pay for some of the costs of adapting Leluya's home to uh, the threat of a a meltwater from a glacial lake. There's also a really interesting phenomenon that's likely to come into play in the next few years, which is that commercial litigation funders have started to get quite interested in this issue of climate change litigation. Now, those are companies, private entities that 
fund cases that they think have a chance of winning major damages awards in return for a cut of those awards um, if they're ultimately issued. And of course, you know, the kinds of cases that they're willing to fund are not necessarily going to be the ones that litigants want to bring on strategic grounds. So we might see some real tensions arising in that space as well. If you had to sort of name a favourite case or a case that really has had impact, is there one particularly you'd pick out or a couple? I think one of the cases that's probably understood by many people in the field as as having had the most impact in recent years is a case that was filed against Shell by a group in the Netherlands called Milieu de Foncy. And that built on a case I mentioned earlier that was filed by Agenda Foundation against the state of the Netherlands. And the first case had said the government has a duty to Dutch citizens to prevent them from being impacted by climate change and having that impact on their enjoyment of their human rights. The second case against Shell tried to use similar arguments and it said Shell has an obligation to respect the human rights of Dutch citizens and not to do things that it knows are going to be putting those citizens in danger. So they have a duty to rapidly reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, including the greenhouse gas emissions that are caused by their customers burning fossil fuels that they produce in order to protect Dutch citizens' rights. And the court in this case agreed with Milieu de Foncy, the NGO, and they ordered Shell to increase their emissions reduction targets so that they would be reducing emissions by 45% by 2030 and achieving net zero. Now, Shell has appealed that case, but I think it's a really interesting one because it shows firstly how the cases against governments um, uh, that we that we saw sort of at the beginning of this process, how they're influencing the cases we're starting to see against corporations and how there's kind of continuity between the legal arguments. And also because it shows that courts are willing to go out on what seems like a, a bit of a limb and say, actually, there is this responsibility. Now, it's very firmly grounded in the existing legal system of the Netherlands, but it's nonetheless extremely groundbreaking and likely to spur additional challenges. What happens if they lose that appeal? They will be forced to have this target, will they? Yes, they will. And potentially to pay penalties if they fail to meet the target. And of course, that's one of the questions or one of the big challenges in climate litigation has been, what are the remedies that litigants can achieve once they've made the case that some existing right or duty is not being complied with? What does the court do then? And in many ways, that's sort of easier in the case of a corporation because uh, they can be um, fined for non-compliance. In the case of governments, it's really, it's really challenging. Is it almost all happening in individual countries' legal systems, action against individual governments, or is there an international component to it? Is the International Court of Justice a factor in this? So most of the litigation has been brought before national courts, but there is a growing body of cases before international courts and tribunals. And there's currently two cases between states. There is an effort led by Vanuatu uh, and others to try and get the International Court of Justice to give what's called an advisory opinion on the obligations that states owe to one another with respect to climate change. And there's a similar parallel effort that's uh, being led also by 
by uh, a number of island states uh, to get the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea to give a similar advisory opinion on what the obligations are under uh, the International Convention on the Law of the Sea. There's also a lot of cases that have been brought by individuals before international tribunals that are responsible for adjudicating human rights matters. Uh, And there's a couple of cases that are currently pending before the European Court of Human Rights that will be really, really pivotal in what happens, at least in Europe, but probably beyond Europe, in the next few years on climate change litigation. Again, on this question of what are the duties that governments have to their citizens and what do they need to do to meet those duties um, in order to avert climate change impacts. Well, look, Catherine Hyam, you've given us a, a brilliant guide to these issues. If people want to know more, we'll put in the show notes uh, the link to the, to the Grantham Research Institute, the excellent work that you do on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Laura Clark, who is CEO of an organization called Client Earth. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a bit more for, for our listeners' benefit about why Client Earth was set up and what you what you do. Clan Earth is an environmental legal charity, and we essentially use the law to try and make strategic interventions to affect the change we need for the people and planet. So to bring down emissions, to protect biodiversity, to stop pollution. And the idea in a lot of what we do is strategic litigation, which is, you know, where you bring a case, you know, against a corporate or against a government. And the idea is to focus not just on that particular case, but to affect a wide you know, a set of larger precedent and affect a wider systemic change that kind of changes the rules of the game and also changes people's mindsets and decision making. So I know this puts you on the spot a little bit, but can you give us some examples of recent victories Client Earth's been involved in? Absolutely. One close to home. Uh, last year, we won a case. We challenged the UK government's net zero strategy. We did that with Friends of the Earth and the Good Law Project. And we essentially said that the government's net zero strategy didn't show sufficiently clearly how its strategy would reduce emissions sufficiently. And the High Court ruled in our favour. It said that the strategy was a breach of the UK's Climate Change Act, and the government then has to go away and strengthen its net zero strategy. And I think that's quite a powerful example of how the law can actually improve government outcomes, because the government decided not to appeal it, but went off to essentially fill the gaps in the strategy and make it more transparent. So that's one example. Another one on the exact opposite side of the world, um, also last year, where we um, worked with the Torres Strait Islanders. Now, the Torres Straits are low-lying islands between Queensland and Australia and Papua New Guinea. And we work with the indigenous Torres Strait Islanders um, to take a complaint to the UN Human Rights Committee, essentially saying that Australia's inaction on climate change was a violation of the rights of the Torres Strait Islanders. So they're 
right to culture, their right to, to life. And the Human Rights Committee upheld that, ordered the Australian government to even pay compensation. And that's really quite powerful because it shows that governments have got a duty to look out for the interests of climate vulnerable people. It was the first time that climate vulnerable people took their government to court and first time actually that indigenous rights to culture were found to be at risk from climate change. The case that we just filed last week, which is because we, we take cases against governments, but also corporates. Um, and last week, we filed a really innovative case against the board of directors of Shell. Ah, uh, yeah, we were going to ask you about this. You've been very, very creative in the way you've gone about it. it. It's very creative. It's the first time this has been done. It's against the directors themselves. And it's as shareholders, the so client Earth holds shares in Shell. And we're essentially saying that the directors are, they're not managing the climate risk facing their company because they're not thinking about the net zero transition. They're not leaning into that transition. And in doing so, they are mismanaging the company and its future because it will no longer be commercially viable if they don't adapt in the face of the net zero challenge. And so what we want to do is we want the court essentially to order the board of directors to strengthen Shell's climate transition plan. So that's quite an exciting case. And I think what's exciting about it is it's not just us as Client Earth with our nominal number of shares. Our case is backed by a huge number of institutional investors holding 11 million shares and half a trillion dollars in assets. And so that's really the market saying you need to manage climate risks better. You need to seize the opportunities of the renewable revolution and not just hunker down in a fossil fuel past. Now, how does Client Earth choose the cases or people it wants to represent? Yeah, it's a good question. We bring cases where we think that will actually affect a broader change in society and also in mindsets. And so, you know, for example, when we, we've done quite a lot of greenwashing cases, which is where we, we shine a light on companies that say they're beautifully green and sustainable when in fact they're not. And we try and do that by making an example. And so you hope then that directors of other companies, the leadership of other companies sit up, take note and change what they do. On that greenwashing, I'm interested in that. What is the legal approach? Is it false advertising claims? Yeah, we bring these cases on two bases, the greenwashing. One is that you're misleading consumers and consumers have got a right to know the truth about the products that they're buying. But secondly, you're delaying climate action. If you're greenwashing, you're basically saying it's all fine here, nothing to see. You're misleading customers, but you're also not then taking the action needed to really make the transition. And so, you know, in a way, what you try and do with that is remove the social license of those companies who are greenwashing. What would you say is your biggest challenge for an organization like Client Earth? Because what you've said sounds like it's, you know, it's had real effects over the years. Mm. But what's the biggest challenge in your role? Well, we're a charity, first of all. So all our work is dependent on the, you know, support of our donors. And that's, you know, we're very lucky that we've got lots of amazing supporters from big philanthropists and big foundations to individuals who will give us maybe £10 a month. But, you know, obviously we can only do what we are supported to do. But in, in terms of how we use the law, um, there are challenges around access to justice. 
particularly when you're in a sort of David and Goliath, you've got a little charity taking on a huge, you know, a fossil fuel major, the risk then of, of adverse costs of the other side racking up their costs and then in, in the end having to pay for those is really challenging. It takes quite a lot of careful navigation and it's and it's not without risk because what we try and do at Client Earth is, is carve new paths, innovate, bring cases that really set a precedent. And of course, you can't do that without having a pretty healthy risk appetite. Laura, one thing that our listeners probably won't know about you is that you were a former diplomat. You were the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Just sort of talk to us here about the balance between, I guess, legal action on the one hand, which is what Client Earth is doing, and sort of national and international legislation and action on the other. In other words, is is sort of climate litigation trying to make up for the failures of sort of mm. – you know, national parliaments, international agreements, and, 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 and to what extent can it fill the gap? I would say it is a really valuable tool to try and raise ambition and also hold governments to account on the commitments that they have already made. But I think what I always say, and this is partly because of my background as a diplomat, you know, it takes everyone from all walks of life, from all sectors, you know, these challenges, they're so all encompassing that you need to come at them from multiple angles. My view very much is you really need the leadership of government. But then you also need others to hold governments to account because the nature of our politics is it's inevitably short term. And actually, sometimes when you bring a legal case, that can almost provide political cover for ministers and politicians to go further and be more ambitious because they say, well, we have to do this. The courts have told us we have to do this. Of course, sometimes it's you know more confrontational, but I like to think that it's also a constructive tool for making the change that we need to see. And, and is it key? Is climate litigation in key in climate justice and um, redressing some of that power balance towards countries that have been most adversely affected? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And you, we're seeing a lot in terms of um, some developing countries in the Pacific. I was, of course, in New Zealand living in the living in the South Pacific. And for those countries, you know, it is so existential. They've got no time for culture wars in the Pacific about whether climate change is real. They're living it every day. But it's also a tool, I would say, for climate justice within countries between uh, rich and poor, but also between generations. And one of the things I'm most excited about is the youth movements for climate, but also the youth movements that are harnessing the power of law. And we're seeing that around the world. Young people saying, it is not fair older generation, that you are leaving these impacts on our generation, that you're leaving all the work to be done by us. Um, and one of those cases was in, in Germany recently, Neubauer et al. in Germany. And that was really the young people saying that Germany's climate change commitments and its emissions reductions weren't sufficiently ambitious, and they were just putting a huge burden on future generations. And that's just one of very many cases. And, and that, to me, is, is really exciting because it is about saying this needs to be a collective effort. I think our listeners listening to you, if I may say so, will feel your sense of dynamism and sort of optimism <laughs> but just to end i mean doing the job you do is, is it how many people do you have working at client at 100 lawyers is it we know we're almost 300 people in total and, and increasingly global 300 wow uh, yeah of whom around you know a bit more than half are lawyers yeah wow so do you feel a sense of optimism do you sort of feel like you know 
things are moving? I, I mean, it is bleak and it is, I think, existential a challenge that we face, but I'm a determined optimist. And I do, you know, I do see lots of causes for optimism. You know, the young people that I talk to, um, you know, whether the, the youth activists who were at COP27 last year or the young people when I, you know, talk to schools sometimes, they're so clued up, they're so focused, they're thinking so creatively about how to come at these problems. And And I think the other thing I would say is, this transition is already happening. Last year, the EU used more solar and wind for energy than it did oil and gas. And any smart businesses, any smart investors, they see that, they see the writing on the wall, they want to get that first mover advantage, and they don't want to be left behind. And so I feel that the climate impacts are happening much faster than many thought they were. But actually, the transition could well happen faster than many expect. So it's about harnessing that drive and harnessing the energy that people have. And I think we can make the change we need. And if people want to support Client Earth, Laura? Thank you, Ed, for asking me. You are good. If they want to support, please do. You can follow us on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, but also importantly, go to our website, very simple, www.clientearth.org. Um, and there's a page there where you could, it says join us. And that either means just getting the updates of all the exciting work we're doing, or you can even, you know, contribute five quid a month, whatever it is, um, to help us bring these cases that really are affecting proper change. Great. Well, Laura Clark, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined from Ontario by Sophia Mathur, who is a 15-year-old climate activist and lead plaintiff in the case against Ontario's government for weakening its climate targets. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Sophia, just for our listeners a bit of background, t talk to us about how well or, or badly Canada itself and Ontario in particular is going in its, in its attempts to tackle the climate crisis. Yeah, so here in Canada, we are kind of getting on track. Our government has a price on carbon with a rebate, and uh, we are setting goals associated with what the IPCC is saying. But specifically on, in Ontario, they have struck down previous climate policies from the previous Ontario government and are not on track to meeting emission reductions goals, uh, reaching 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. And other provinces around our country are doing that, and Ontario is not. So tell us a bit about yourself. When did fighting against the climate crisis become important to you? Well, it's always kind of been a thing that we've discussed in our in our home. My mom has been a lobbyist and my grandfather is an IPCC scientist. So it's always been something I've known about from a very young age. Uh, but around the time that I was uh, seven or eight years old, uh, my mom was about to go lobbying on, on Parliament Hill in Canada. And instead of usually, you know, going to a museum or something with my dad, I asked, um, can I see what my mom's 
doing and I want to learn about her job and I want to learn about climate change. So I attended uh, her meetings with the politicians and I learned about climate change and I learned about how it was affecting my generation and how it was affecting nature. Um, and then I decided to join with her lobbying more and more again. Uh, and I would draw photos for politicians and I, I'd get to talk to them, but it was more like I didn't know a lot of the science. So the conversations were very short. Um, and then in uh, 2018, I heard about what Greta Thunberg was doing and I was automatically inspired because I was like, yes, we need something for youth to do because I knew it was affecting us. So I decided to join what she was doing. And um, that's how EcoJustice saw and approached me about getting involved in the lawsuit. That's so interesting. And you're currently part of a group of seven young people who are taking the Ontario government to court over its decision to roll back its climate targets. It's known as Mathur et al. versus His Majesty in Right of Ontario. Can you give us some background on this case and, and what you're fighting for? Yeah, so Ontario struck down a lot of previous climate policies, but also they're failing to meet a lot of the targets from the Paris Agreement. So we're not on track for a livable future here in Ontario. We're not on track to reduce our emissions enough, according to the science. So I'm a representative of an Ontarian, and so are all the other younger kids. We're future Ontarians. We're going to be future people with jobs. Some of them can still vote, but I can't yet. I'm a future voter. So we're here to represent the future generation of Ontario that are concerned about our life here and concerned about the fact that our government is not doing enough. At this point, we're kind of just waiting for a response. We went to court in September and it could take up to a, like a year uh, for a response uh, from the court because there is a lot of information. What made you decide to get involved in this endeavour? You talked very interestingly about getting involved with your mom when you were younger in climate issues and your role of your grandfather. But what about this issue in particular? Yeah, I think this is really important. I, there are uh, other cases around the world who are doing the same thing. Uh, but I also think it's really important to have younger people such as myself, like teenagers who can't even vote yet. I can't even decide who this person in the government is that is making these decisions. But I do have the opportunity now to be able to speak up and under law, say that you have to take action under the climate crisis. I also think it's a great way to show adults, people that are paying attention to this case that, hey, maybe you should look more into government's climate policies before you vote for them. Maybe you should figure out what the Ontario government is doing that is not protecting our future. And I think it is really important. And it could also be used for future references if we win, that other cases can refer to us and say, hey, in Ontario, they did this same thing. So I think it's really important. And I I also think it's important that I am on it as a, a younger kid. And you're currently at high school. In fact, today is a snow day, I think they call them in North America. So um, you've got up very early, but you'll be able to, to be at home today. But what's been the reaction of your classmates at, at school? Because obviously, you know, it's become quite well known, your case. So what's been their reaction? Well, I also do Friday Street Future, and I do a lot of activism in the city as well. And we've actually invited schools, uh, such as, you know, our elementary school and our high school. So a lot of my classmates, the people in my class have been to our events and have held signs and have protested alongside with me. And I think that a lot of other kids um, are really concerned about the climate crisis and are just not sure how to approach it. So we've given, they have a lot of opportunities here in Sudbury to join protests, but I'm glad to be able to uh, be a voice and help represent not just my concerns, but the concerns of other youth and my classmates in Ontario that are also concerned. 
And you can said at the beginning that, you know, seeing the example of Greta Thunberg had inspired you. In turn, what are your words of advice or wisdom for other young people or indeed older people who look at the climate crisis and maybe think, you know, what can I do? You know, how can I deal, tackle this on my own? It seems so overwhelming. What's your advice? Yeah. So in our lawsuit, we use the phrase gen climate action, which means we are the generation of climate action. It doesn't matter how old, how young you are. You have a responsibility to step up for our future. Um, you know, if you're concerned about this, you can go and join organizations. There are so many active people out there that are out there doing things and speaking up for their future. And I think that it's it's really important that if you're sad about the climate crisis and you're learning about this and you're like, oh, God, this is so horrible, but I don't know what to do. It's always important to turn that anger or sadness into action. And that's how we get governments to do things. We can't just sit at home and contemplate how horrible it is. We have to go out and talk to people and discuss it and make sure that things are done about it. And it's important that every single person uh, that is concerned about this speaks up about it. That's a really important point, isn't it? That, you know, it's easy to be despairing when you see the scale of the climate catastrophe and what may happen in the future. But but it's important not to succumb to despair, to turn that anger, I guess, into, into action. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there are Sometimes it's really important to kind of go out there and say the facts about how horrible the climate crisis is. But it's also important to go out and say, you know, yeah, we've had success so far. There's so much more we can do, but we also need to keep hope for the future. Because personally, I believe that um, we are capable of a climate safe future. And I'm, I'm very hopeful for that. And I'm glad to see the success so far in the lawsuit and the success so far in my activism. And how do you think your experiences as a young climate activist shape you as a person? I mean, and maybe partly as you think about what you're going to do in the future. Yeah, um, I think being involved in this lawsuit has kind of sparked an interest in law. And I think a lot of the lawyers there, I feel like uh, they do a lot of other cases like this one, uh, whether it be targeting a specific pipeline or such. And I think that's really important because even as governments start acting on the climate crisis, there needs to be people there making sure that they continue to follow up with that and that they continue to protect our future. That was the other question I was going to ask, which is, how important do you think climate litigation, which is the subject of our episode today, is in, in creating the kind of future we want? Yeah, I think it is really important because, you know, in order for us to get action on the climate crisis, we need governments to make that like last action the, to actually make sure that we get off of fossil fuels so that we can do all that. And being a part of this case and making sure that if we win, that they will have to take that under law is really important. And it can also be referred to by many other cases so that under law, governments have to take action on the climate crisis and ha can't ignore our human rights when it comes to the climate. And when will we know the result of the case, Sophia? It should be within the next couple months. So in between now and September 2023. Well, look, good luck with it. It's, it's really inspiring to talk to you, uh, Sophia Mathur. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was great meeting you. So, Your Honour. Objection! Overruled. I used to love legal dramas as a child. Now, what do we think of our discussion? Well, um, I thought it was a brilliant conversation. I really like the idea of precedent causing a domino effect, not just in terms of other cases being brought, but governments and corporations seeing that the writing is on the wall and then changing preemptively. And I just loved 
Laura's kind of um, capitalist case for climate action. In other words, that it's financially irresponsible to shareholders not to prioritise a company's green transition because that's the financially responsible thing to do. And if that's successful, that could be massive. I suppose what strikes me is this climate challenge is so big and there's such powerful forces out there you need every tool in the box. And I think if you see these legal actions as a kind of quite important tool in the box, I think they're almost like a a forcing mechanism. You know, I don't think they kind of end up setting the policy, but they can sort of stop bad policy, if you know what I mean. Mm. You know, Sophia, seeing young people, I mean, it's both inspiring. And in a way, I thought after the conversation, young people who say, why are we having to do this? I kind of know where they're coming from. But it is incredibly inspiring to a 15-year-old who's so engaged in this issue, who's part of the lead plaintiff, I think, in this case. It's something to talk to one's kids about. It's a reason for hope. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro ho ho. We are. I've got exciting news. I'm on a Wordle streak. Congratulations, how many? 45, but our record is 71. So we have this pattern we do irate as our opening word. And irate, we get we got nothing absolute zippo and then our second word after we get nothing is sound and sound was the word oh that's so strange yeah do you not find it a bit boring using the same word every time no we're we're we're... it's your strategy can you imagine if there's one day one day when there is irate as the answer we switch (laughs) (laughs) i mean that we could have got it in one and then we won't so i think we have to stick with it until maybe when irate is the word we will then, we can then switch. Yes, it's, it's like the curse of always doing the same lottery numbers, I think. That's a good point. How collaborative is the Miliband world? Very collaborative. No, very collaborative. I'd say generally it's good cooperation. And actually, the, the cooperation has improved as we have got closer to beating our streak. So there is a sort of collective will now. So it's a form of family therapy. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> right, should we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank... Catherine Hyam, Laura Clark, and Sophia Mathur. Emma Corsham is our audio producer, our content research. Guest booking is all done by Rachel Barmer, who's backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed, composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>